Hi, and welcome to the Red Tunic Podcast, a podcast where I look to rediscover what makes gaming fun and enjoyable by having positive conversations with those related to the industry. My name is Link, and today I'm joined by Erdorp, creator of retro-inspired horror games, contributor to DreadX, and maker of the upcoming Faith Trilogy. Hi, Erdorp. How are you doing today? Hey, doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I'm glad to hear you're doing all right, and, you know, I'm happy to have you here. Thank you so much for making the time to have this conversation with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, I always enjoy kind of reaching out to the community and doing podcasts and stuff. Yeah, and you know, hopefully that this is uh this is an enjoyable experience for you, um, or a good experience. I don't. Sorry, I I kind of bubbled that one up. Um, so Airdorf, Airdorf, for those that don't know you or know of you too much, do you mind just giving you know telling uh telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm a game developer out of Texas. Um, I run Airdorf Games. I started really getting into serious game development in uh, around 2016, 2017. I released my first major title, Faith. It's a pixelated horror game based on the satanic scare of the 1980s in October 2017. And since then, I've been working on the sequels, and I'm currently working on the final chapter of like the main installments of of the game Um, and we're gonna i'm gonna bundle it all together and call it the unholy trinity and it should be out hopefully this year on steam and console starting with the nintendo switch other than that i've i've um, done a fair amount in the vr space just on you know like professional stuff and i've done quite a bit with uh, like research on like the game studies, game design side. And I've done a couple of other titles. I mostly do horror titles. And uh, I I like to collaborate with film companies. Sometimes I'll get contacted by a film company to make a tie-in game for one of their films. The most recent one I did was Attack of the Murder Hornets, which is a documentary on Discovery Plus. And you can play the, the free kind of teaser game online on itch.io. And I've done some other horror film tie-in games. You know, that's that's really cool to hear, you know, just the 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 direction or like, you know, just the the spread of experience, I guess. Sorry, I'm I'm saying that in a weird way. But, you know, that's really interesting that it's uh you've you've had you've you know, you've been approached or been able to to go in that direction, you know find more experiences like that and i only you know one of the reasons i say this because for me horror games uh, as much as i say that i'm still trying to like play them more and get into them they're still like a weird anomaly to me only because i'm i've never been like a huge fan of of the genre Uh, as i've gotten older it's been something i've you know been exploring more or more and such it's just you know when i was younger it, it didn't sit well with me and all of that fun stuff so it just was never a thing that i I sought out and I'm not saying, you know, in that in a negative way that, you know, I don't, I think they're bad or anything. It's just my exposure is really low. So uh, one of the things I like to ask when I do talk to people that work more with uh, horror type games is why horror games? Like what got you to do into like that space? Yeah. Well, my first, the first game that I ever played that was like my own was Link's Awakening Legend of Zelda for the original Game Boy. This would have been my sixth or or fifth birthday. 
1994. So right around the time the, the original game came out. And it it remains my favorite video game of all time because it taught me that these games can be like their own little virtual worlds that you can get totally immersed in and absorbed in. Game Boy has a tiny screen, you know, limited resolution. But I was absolutely emotionally invested in that world that was on that cartridge. There's a part of the of Link's Awakening where you walk into a village that's normally peaceful, but when you when you enter, these like boys run up to you and they're in a panic, and this like horrible music starts playing, and they explain that one of the villagers got kidnapped, and you gotta go rescue them. And I remember like six or seven year old me like couldn't handle it. Like it was too much. I was like, wait, so you're telling me that this world that I feel so absorbed in it can change and like bad things can happen to these characters and like i'm responsible for them they started sobbing it was like way too much for my like six-year-old mind to handle but that game taught me that you know about the emotional power of games one of the most powerful emotions i believe is fear and i think that's why the horror genre is so compelling to so many people it's like a safe outlet to experience kind of the darker side of of um, you know the human brain and human emotions and and you know in kind of a safe environment and i got my start with horror games i think i was in high school i i rented fatal frame it was right around the time like the grudge and the ring came out so the kind of japanese kind of yokai like trope you know the long-haired long black-haired ghost was popular at the time and so I looked, I got a hold of Fatal Frame and Fatal Frame 2 for the PlayStation 2, took it over to my girlfriend's house, and we spent most of the night playing it. And I don't know, it was definitely cathartic to me. I was, we were kind of paralyzed with how scary that game was. And I you know, was thinking about it a lot. So from that time, I, I started kind of looking into the horror genre, like Resident Evil and Silent Hill. I was always too afraid to, to play Silent Hill. And then, uh, I had pretty strict strict parents who wouldn't let me play stuff like that, so I would have to kind of, you know, clandestinely play at night, you know, with uh, lights were off and, um, or take it over to a friend's house or a girlfriend's house and and play. And so it was kind of this like, I, I don't want to say forbidden fruit, but it was kind of this like strange kind of kind of cathartic thing for me. My first forays into game development weren't actually horror related. They were on um it was it was a ROM hack of the original Legend of Zelda called Zelda Classic. And that particular ROM hack has a has an editor that lets you kind of piece together, you know, with the tile the tile sets for the original game. You can kind of make your own Zelda games. And I started doing that in seventh and eighth grade, I think. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the US <laughs> school system i would have been like 11 or 12 when i started making those games but then and around 2014 2015 i got this idea for a horror game and by then i had played a lot of horror games i i'd watched uh, markiplier for years started watching him during his amnesia the dark descent playthrough days and uh followed him all through man and all the slender man clones and five nights of freddy's and all the five nights of freddy's clones and i felt like i had a pretty grasp on what like what could scare people and what could get a good reaction on youtube and 
it was right around the time PT came out, 2014, which I consider my favorite horror game. I would say PT, the Silent Hills trailer. Screw you, Konami, for <laughs> for taking a PlayStation <laughs> store. But um, I was thinking about that, thinking about how much I wanted to get into gaming and like games and stuff. I wanted to make a game like PT. I was disappointed that it got canceled, and I was like, man, what if I? Wouldn't it be cool if like indie developers started like kind of making spiritual successors to PT and making their own Silent Hills? Maybe that's what Kojima kind of was getting at all along, you know, that we would kind of take the rest of us would kind of take up that mantle. But I didn't have any graphics know-how for like the Unreal Engine, for example, which at the time was the engine that you used for those kind of cutting edge looking graphics. So I thought to myself, you know, I made like one game maker game. I made like one pixel kind of platformer game when I was in college for like a game design class. And I got a pretty good handle on it. What if I made my own game and it was a horror game, but it was it took like the opposite approach. It didn't have fancy like realistic kind of high fidelity graphics. What if it like purposefully used kind of Atari level of graphics or like MS-DOS or like Apple II, that whole generation. So a distinct, chunky, clunky, 8-bit aesthetic and turned it into a horror game. Could I scare people with that? And there wasn't a lot of stuff like that at the time. There was a little bit that kind of resembled it. Like uh, when when Faith first came out, a lot of people commented that it looked like the interstitial mini games from, I think it was Five Nights at Freddy's 3 or 4 or something where they really got that kind of Atari look. And there were definitely pixel horror games before Faith, like I'm Scared is a, is a classic one that uses that kind of pixelated early 3D aesthetic. And, um, but I think mine had enough interesting things like the rotoscope cutscenes, which we can talk about later, and the sound design I think was really kind of not groundbreaking but i think it like no one had kind of put that to put all those parts together to form that kind of product and it kind of resonated so i i have a large kind of ledger of how many games i want to make in my life and game uh game design ideas and unfortunately i'll never live long enough to be able to do all of them but um some of them are non-horror most of them are and I think I've discovered over the course of Faith and Faith Chapter 2, uh, Summer Night, the game that I released for the Dreadx collection and others, that I guess I have a talent for scaring people with my games. And that's kind of become my mission. Like, right now, my games are for scaring you. <laughs> Not necessarily, um, like, I obviously they should be entertaining, but they're very much pointed towards an audience that appreciates kind of the horror genre and especially the retro uh, kind of aesthetic. And so that's kind of what I'm going for right now. Eventually, I guess I'll branch into like this this fancy thing called, called 3D and make like a 3D game and stuff. We tried that with Earl's Day Off, me and Torpal Duke, a collaborator of mine, and uh, it was pretty good. We'd like to expand it and improve it sometime after Faith is finished. But yeah, that's kind of my journey of how I got into games. Like, I don't know, I I'm a I'm a happy guy. Like 
I like to be pretty positive and I have a, I have kind of a healthy, positive outlook on life, but I guess there's this kind of dark side of the universe that I'm very interested in. And there's specific things in horror that really scare me. Like I'm really into the supernatural and paranormal, like ghosts and spirits and curses and stuff. I, I love Japanese horror because it's all about that. I haven't, I've never really been scared by things like zombies or like werewolves or like creatures or serial killers. I mean, obviously all those things are objectively scary, but like when I watch like a horror movie, I really want to watch something like paranormal activity or um, hereditary where you're dealing with like an unseen force that's, you know, totally beyond your comprehension and beyond your abilities to deal with. And uh, so that's kind of, that's kind of what I've been into. And uh, I hope to take this kind of talent that I have as far as I can go and uh, maybe someday earn a living off of it. But for now, it's just like a, a hobby that pays for a nice date night every week. <laughs> we'll just say that. Well, you know, I, I thank you for, 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 you know, walking, walking me and anyone, anyone listening through that. That's, you know, a really interesting way to, you know, how you got from point A to, to point B. And, you know, as you said, having to like sneak away to enjoy these games. And then at the same time, how uh, it kind of evolved from there into you, you making these games, which is just great to hear and, you know, fantastic. Um, there were a few things that I would like to touch on. Um, and, you know, the, when I, when I tried faith, one of the things that I enjoyed the most with it or about it was that it really did nail uh, that that like the old Atari style, including like the sound, you know, you touched on the sound design and I, I, I felt that it was, you know, pretty spot on. It did a great job. Um, not, not meaning it's like a one-to-one -one for Atari sounds. I'm just meaning everything like that package was great. And, you know, you, you answered a question I was going to ask about, and that was the rotoscoping, which I, you know, I, I, I assumed it was rotoscope or I presumed it was just based on, you know, the movement and everything. And I, Wanted to say that that was, in my opinion, a great, um, a great thing to include with the, uh, include with like the general aesthetic because it, you know, you, it, it's done yeah. well and it fits real well. So I just wanted to comment on that. And, you know, you already answered that it was rotoscoping. Yeah, I totally agree. Without the sound design that I chose, like the old speech synthesizers from the 70s or the rotoscope cutscenes. I don't know if Faith would have resonated quite the way that it did. I mean, just to be totally realistic, like the strong points are definitely it's, you know, it's dedication to the aesthetic, but the sound design has been frequently quoted as being something very uh, unnerving and kind of disturbing to people. And then the rotoscope cutscenes, that was a total gamble. I, whenever a monster would pop up, it, it would just be like a still image. So, uh, but then I thought like, well, what if I took it a little further and had like a really creepy looking rotoscope thing, you know, kind of banking on uh, the uncanny valley, we call it. And I had some experience in animation. I went to animation school as an undergrad and um, then I kind of shifted away from that, from animation to uh, game design when I was a grad student. And but I still kind of had that know-how and it's, it was fun. 
like uh the rotoscoping uh, maybe someday i'll release all the original footage of me like stomping around my house acting like a demon <laughs> and for chapter three I, I got my wife in in on it she plays the she's the model for amy in a lot of the rotoscoped cutscenes in chapter three and uh but most of them are me so that would explain why amy has such like broad shoulders <laughs> in the first game um but yeah i i really like making those rotoscope cutscenes. i used to do them on the mouse like just like you know 15 frames per second so one drawing for or 15 drawings for every second of animation sometimes the animations be like four to six seconds long so it's quite a quite a few and i used to do them with the mouse on the screen and that was like killing my wrist and um i let people know that on twitter and they were like they're like, well, it's time you got one of the drawing like display tablets where you can just draw on it with a stylus. And uh, my fans were very, very, very charitable and generous and helped fund a nice uh, tablet for me. And so my output has been a lot faster. In fact, I have a rotoscoped cutscene, I think that is over a minute long. And I'm pretty sure I've done over a thousand individual drawings for chapter three. Oh wow, that's um yeah, that's that's something. Like I don't <laughs> I that's sorry, that sounds way too dismissive. I just mean that's, you know, that's a lot of work. That's, you know, that's Yeah, thank that is you. a serious package in an under like an undertaking. Sorry. I mean, I could totally automate it, I suppose. There's that guy um uh what's his face? He does a lot of rotoscoped like comedy skits about like rpgs and stuff oh yes i know who you're talking i don't remember the name but i know who you're talking about yeah you know he uses a program that kind of i think it i think he draws like one frame and then it tracks onto his motion or something like that and there's there's a guy at new blood who is working on like a shoot 'em up game that's like a mob or like a mafia style fallen uh, aces i game. believe it is yeah the guy working on fallen aces i think was using that to try to get some of his animation frames um but yeah i um i do it a very difficult old school way <laughs> it's very handcrafted and there's a lot of stuff that you can't rotoscope so there's like there's like blood and gore effects and like you know freaky things happening with like the demons and stuff and those i can't rotoscope so i have to rely on my old animation skills to kind of free draw that you know frame by frame so i um and fans of the games will see that chapter three has some impressive rotoscoping and animation and, and cutscenes overall that I've been able to do. I'm really excited to show the full package to, to fans, but I'm at a point where I'm working on the ending of the game and I can't post anything. I can't post any updates because it would spoil it. And I, I get really weird about like spoiling things for horror games. For example, I really don't like it when people make a horror game where there's like one monster and they show that monster in the trailer you know and it's like okay like you just took away half the suspense that i would have had coming into your game like now i know exactly what to expect exactly what it looks like my brain's already trained to recognize the pattern you know the image pattern that you just showed me in your trailer and it's going to take away that essential element of dread and and fearful anticipation out of your game but anyway that's a total tangent but one of my pet peeves and you know i i know 
Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. And you know, you I I understand completely what you're what you're getting at. And it's kind of like when amnesia had its physical release. Because uh, for those that have not experienced Amnesia: The Dark Descent, um, because at this point it is a relatively old game. And sure, let's be honest. Um, yeah, yes, absolutely. It's it, I found it fantastic. Um, for what I did play of it, I hit a point personally where I just didn't know what to do, and I was like, okay, I'm done. Um, <laughs> I just hit a wall, right? But um, the you know part of the horror of that was not knowing what you were dealing with and having you know the monster kind of obfuscated behind um, uh, just the way they did it for like your sanity meter or what have you, where everything got fuzzy if you looked at it and all that. And then the physical release took that monster and just slapped it straight on the box. And suddenly you're like, this isn't that scary. This just looks funny almost when you see it without the veneer of all of the mental status effects happening, you know? Yeah. So I, I get where you're coming from where, you know, you want, you don't want to, you don't want people to just be normalized going into the experience. You want them to be shocked. You want them to experience it for the first time or what have you and not know what they're going to be seeing or what they're going to be dealing with, right? Yeah. And the the Faith series has like in my trailers like there it gives you like glimpses of things. I think the difference is that there's so much variety of what to expect. And uh if I'm going to put like a a creature or a demon or something like that in the trailer that I show, I sure as heck like I I kind of remix the image or I you know, I have control over the game development platform so i kind of put it in a different room or put it in a different scenario so that players think that they can expect that thing from that trailer but they don't know they don't they really don't know when or where it'll it'll pop up or what it'll sound like and stuff but some of these some of these trailers now the sole exception was choo choo charles did you see that trailer i yes i am i am aware of choo choo charles yeah two star the kid's a genius. In one 15-second clip, they they sold so many people on their concept, and they were bold enough to show uh, Choo Choo Charles, you know, clambering up to you with its spider legs, and then you running away, and then hopping on the train, and just blasting away at it with, like, a mounted machine gun. And then the whole trailer just perfectly describes what the game loop will be like you know and all that stuff and so uh that was a supremely effective horror game trailer and the conclusion i've come to is that games that have like iconic like characters you know like choo choo charles knights of freddy's um there's one that kind of like muppet he's like a blue muppet with like red lips and sharp teeth um something like that or like the the lunch lady you know stuff like that where it kind of revolves over one like very meme worthy character i think those kind of you sacrifice a little bit of the unknown for something that is so over the top that you can't resist playing it you know so i think that's how it works but um you know and then, uh, you know, for example, Five Nights at Freddy's 2, like, it totally revealed the animatronics and, like, their new look and stuff. 
but in the actual game you deal with more than them there's like the puppet and the little boy the little balloon boy and mangle and stuff and so it kind of throws in some some surprises there that are unexpected but choo choo charles i would count as like one of the um like one of the came out of nowhere strokes of genius in the horror game community and i wish nothing but success to that guy and uh people should play his other games uh my beautiful paper smile was a, a game that they made and it's got this really cool art style where everything looks like a kind of a cutout out of paper um so i would recommend that one but yeah i'm really excited about that game and just like props to them for making such a killer trailer that instantly hooked a lot of people and and frankly went viral you know, yeah definitely and you know i i agree completely that you know that from what I've seen in the trailer, I'm I'm hooked. I think a lot of people are kind of like you said, it went viral. And it, it just it it did a very good job at showing you the loop, but at the same time saying, Oh, by the way, you're gonna be dealing with this absurd spider monster train thing. <laughs> good luck, have fun, you know. And that you like you at that point you you know this menacing thing's going to be there. And you know, that doesn't, in my opinion, in this case, it's not going to detract from the experience because it's a giant horrifying menace thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, you know, I, I agree completely and I, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to that as well. Now, Erdorf, you, you touched on, you know, how you got into game developing. I didn't, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm happy you answered how you did because, you know, you, you covered it when you were talking about why horror, which is, uh, saved me having to ask the question you were ahead of me but based on the experiences that you had getting into game dev and you know what have you is there any advice you could give to those looking to get into the industry yeah well my situation is kind of different from like the you know the lone indie developer who like quits their job and and like bets it all on their their indie title i really don't have that kind of confidence even in faith um so i i do what i think some some people do is, is i do indie dev on the side and i retain my day job and um i have other commitments i have a family and uh and other things and so i don't really i can't really relate to like the indie dev who's like okay i'm going to make a game and that's what I'm going to live off of, you know, like do or die kind of stuff. I don't know if there's a lot of people that do that these days, you know, with the allure of like the one one person team who goes off to make like a huge hit, you know, like um, like Super Meat Boy or Fez or, um, you know, Five Nights at Freddy's Undertale being the biggest one, I think. And they all collaborated with people, but I, I call them like, one-person teams for the you know the bulk of development i guess so my advice would be you know enter cautiously but you know enter this world cautiously keep your keep a foot in you know the real world where you have a a job and you know and other responsibilities but just make the time to start i guess there's a lot of people who email me and message me and are like, hey, what game engine do you use? I want to make games like you. Or, you know, what, uh, you know, what do you use to make this asset? What do you use to make this? 
and I answer them. But what I really want to answer them is like, you can make a game on PowerPoint. You know, you can make a game coding your own engine on in C++. You can make a game in Unity. You can make like, you can make faith in any of those platforms. The platform is not what enables me to make compelling games. It's my experience and it's from years of trying and iterating and failing and picking myself up and you know struggling and sweating and bleeding you know all that stuff to make it happen there were times when i was getting up at like five o'clock in the morning to work on faith before i had class and then i would work on faith till like 11 at night go to bed start the whole thing over again and there were times when I had the whole summer just to work on faith. And there were times when I had very little time to work on it. And it was very depressing not being able to make significant progress on, you know, my product. But you just got to put in the time. Like, there's so many dis distractions. You know, you want to keep up with the latest TV show that everyone's talking about. You know, you want to play other games. You know, if you want to do this, like... You shouldn't be shelling out $60 every month for like the latest game. You need that for food and and stuff <laughs> so that you can kind of survive while you do this. That's just my opinion. But starting and just putting something out. And there's, there's still debate on how to actually go about doing this, especially if you want to go into the industry industry, not just be like a solo dev who like sells a product online. Like if you want to get picked up by a game studio as like a designer or like an artist or something. There's a lot of debate as to whether you should be involved in like make like a big project that is a very polished finished product, you know, where you really show that you like took your time to really refine it, polish it and perfect it. Or should you have a bunch of design prototypes where you can be like here in this, in this little game I made, I, um, I don't know, it, I used AI to make an image matching game, or in this game, I used this kind of clever design principle to make this kind of game, or, you know, just have like a little tiny portfolio to show a bunch of like, hey, look, I have the know-how to like program and design, you know, these kind of effective and fun little tiny prototype games, or, you know, is it I made this you know, I made this adventure game that's really polished that's on Steam, you know, that I ready to work on. I don't really know what the way to go is. I would think when you're first starting out, like like if you're just starting out, you don't know how to program, you don't know you're not familiar with any of these game engines, and um, you know, you're not you haven't had the experience of like a large, larger production, then start small, like don't try to make the next Skyrim, like don't um the next like dark souls or whatever make a you know you can make like a prototype game that explores the user experience of skyrim or dark souls or something like that you know but don't waste time trying to do the whole thing like just put something out and then advertise advertise it like get a twitter get a tiktok or whatever and start showing people go on forums go on you know facebook groups and show them that and get feedback, you know. Uh, that's actually what I did for several years before I released Faith, you know. I make little made little tiny games and send them to people and be like, what do you, you know, what do you think about this? 
even when I was involved in Zelda Classic, there's a a pretty robust community. I don't know how big the community is anymore. I wish it was bigger. It's basically Mario Maker, but for Zelda, it's pretty cool. But you, um, you know, you can you have the resource of showing your your game to the community. And so when I was 11 or 12, I would just get on the discussion boards and show them my stuff. You know, I got a little, uh, what was it, like a GeoCities site to host um, the game file so that people could download it. And um, I got some good feedback that way. They never knew I was like an 11 or 12-year-old kid, you know. But I was able to interface with, I was assuming adults who, you know, had like a critical eye for that kind of thing because they'd been doing it longer than I was. And that was a pretty pretty cool experience where I kind of got to grow as like a really young designer. And, you know, thank you for sharing that. And that's, that's all, that's, you know, great to hear. Uh, and, you know, I, I understand, I, I think that's useful information to say, you know, just put in the time, put something out there. Um, one thing I did want to touch on for those that are unaware, um, GeoCities was a free website hosting platform <laughs> that provided a, what you see is what you get set up. Um, and it, it just let you put out websites. And I yeah. only say that because I'm 34. And based on what you just said, you are definitely within the same range as me, I'm assuming. Yes, definitely. Um, <laughs> and I know that a lot of people have no idea what GeoCities is. Um, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. All I can say, though, is when GeoCities disappeared... The amount of websites doing marquee text also disappeared. So you know, it kind of a win-win, maybe. I don't know. That's I'm yeah. I'm not I'm not an expert. I think the internet was dealt a tremendous blow when we lost GeoCities. That's just me. That I you know that. I mean, there's a lot to say about like harassment and stuff and whatever, but I don't know. I kind of grew up in the age of the internet where it was kind of the, it wasn't the wild wild west, but like you had to have tough skin to like survive, and. Um, you know, you, you get into all sorts of stuff. There was a, um, there was like a sex advice forum on the Zelda classic forum. And I was like 11 or 12, you know, and, <laughs> but I was very innocent. I was like, I was like Goku and Dragon Ball. I was like, oh, okay, whatever. It sounds weird. You know, <laughs> it'd be like, I'm going to video games, but I don't know. You kind of, I, it had its, it had its uh, bad moments, but I kind of long for those days where, it was like, it was like no big deal to get flamed by people. Like you just, flaming would be like get insulted or bullied. Like you just bully back or you just go to another forum. Like I don't know. I guess that's another, another can of peanuts that I probably don't want to open. But I don't know. I there's things about the old internet that I missed. GeoCities being one of them, just because they were so goofy and what you see is what you get. That's like the perfect way to describe uh, GeoCities. There was another one. What was the other one? Oh Angel, man. Angel Fire? Yes. Yeah. And it it was great. It was just like center aligned text that's like, hi, welcome to uh welcome to my Super Mario fan art website webpage. Uh sign my guest book. And because uh, there were digital guest books back then. <laughs> it's like there's a little counter on the bottom that's like, you are the fifty-eighth person to <laughs> to visit my page since two thousand and one, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, Homestead, by the way, was the other one. I was, oh, yeah, Homestead. Forgot about them. Um, but no, you know, I, I understand what you're saying. And yeah, the, the internet back then was a weird 
place. And, you know, nowadays, a lot of stuff just feels, in my opinion, it feels kind of mashed up. It was up. different. Yeah. It so was like, different. If you had a problem with someone on the internet or if someone uh, insulted you or hurt your feelings on the internet back then, you went to war. Like, you declared war, you amassed your troops, and you tried to destroy them. Because there was hardly anyone besides the moderators and the administrators of whatever forum you were on that could stop you. And now everything is so like highly policed and stuff. And and that's a good thing, but it's also a little boring. I don't know. <laughs> no, I... I uh... So I'm very sorry if I insult anyone who's been the victim of cyberbullying, but so um, um, if you don't mind, it, I'm going to do a little bit of different. Day. Yes, it was it was just dis- different. I didn't mean to to uh, to cut you off there or or speak over you. Um, however, if you don't mind, I'm going to do a little bit of um, a little bit of defense on your part there, <laughs> okay? Um, because what you said is going to mean a lot more to people that are of our age, that are people that, you know, are older, started on the Absolutely. Like young millennials and Gen Z, um, I don't think they will ever have the kind of experience on the internet that we did. No. And, you know, what you were saying, you're you're right. It's a better place today. It's, I don't want to say safer, but it's not as, not as, you know, it's just not the same. It's not as wild westy. People and, stand up for each other now today. Yes. And, you know, what you were saying and, you know, you just, you fought back uh, and what have you. Like, that's because that's what you had to do. Uh, you know, today, you it's, it's, it's just entirely different. And I'm, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm 34. I'm removed from that, this version of the internet in that way. I And we're still much... learning. Like, we're still learning what it's all about. Like, yeah. I um I I made I I picked off a bunch of people on Twitter once cuz I used like a term that they found offensive and I had never thought of that term as offensive um but someone exp- you know someone called me out and then I DM'd them and I was like hey uh I see that my tweet really offended you or like really hurt you like what's the deal like what what could I have done better what could I have done differently and they explained it to me and I was like oh okay and I I tried to tell them like look like I'm in my 30s, like, the internet was a completely different place when I was your your age, I'm assuming, or when I was a child. Like, I'm, I am learning, I'm still learning, like, how, how to interact in this, like, brave new world of the, of the, you know, post, I don't know, kind of post-2010 internet, post-2014, I guess, I don't know. And I, you know, I apologize, and we, we move on, and it's all, it's all good, but it's like, like I did not grow up with the online social etiquette that is mainstream now, and I'm and in some and sometimes I um, sometimes I I still have a lot to learn, a lot to learn. So I try not to say stuff anymore. I try I just try to post about my my work and post memes and stuff. But you know, to quote smiling friends, I don't know what's going to be offensive in ten years. So I <laughs> so it's probably probably a lost cause anyway but it's fun internet is still fun it's just uh it was different back then yes and you know i i i I completely understand what you're saying and i think a lot of people can relate and Patton oswald he he put it best and i you know i'm not saying this is directly related to what you said um 
I'm, I'm just like, you know, it's on a broad scope, what he said can be applied, I think. And it was basically one of his jokes was not to confuse people that use the right language as being allies. And I say that in the sense of, you know, when his was, it was, you know, uh, the, the standard character of, you know, um, of someone that's just, uh, you know, is from the, I don't want to use I don't want to unintentionally insult anyone, but it was like, you know, speaking of someone that was just like a, a hick or, or what have you, using words that are not right, but they are saying supportive things in comparison to someone that uses all of the right words, but at the end of everything they say, you realize, oh no, they just said a bunch of insulting stuff, but they just dressed it behind all the right things to say, like using the right words, so you think they're, they're on your side. And I think that's one of the harder things now in trying to navigate things because you know you you know like you said we learn more you know things evolve and everything and you know you 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 say something that when you were younger and if you're not part of that community or, or what have you you might not realize how bad or just how how that's evolved right and you know i yeah. say this from from a a point where you know uh TV shows 20 years ago said things, not even 20 years ago, but what have you, said things that, like primetime TV shows, would say things that if you said that now, you, would you, wouldn't, you wouldn't say that now. You know better. And there are some things that you just don't know are how unacceptable they are or just how far past that line they've went. And, you know, kind of like you said, you know, you, you do it and someone goes, hey, don't do that. And you, you know, I, I think a, a decent person will be like, I'm sorry, why? Like, please educate me. I'm, well, I, I'm a... I, was, I was lucky because people actually called me out instead of just trying to deplatform me. I, I, like the, uh, I like the approach of people on Etsy and, and eBay. Like, if you're, if you're not satisfied with what they sold you, you can give them a one-star review. But they're going to wish that you had brought the problem up to them personally first or you publicly destroyed them with a one-star review. Because, like, like one-star one reviews are pretty devastating to, like, sellers on eBay and, and Etsy and stuff. And almost every time that I was, you know, that I jumped the gun and just for the for the bad review, I'd instantly get a message be like, hey, hey man, what the heck? Like, you could have we could have fixed this like personally if you just contacted me it's just instead of giving me a irreversible bad review bad rating on this website so uh sometimes i wish um you know i'm I'm a firm believer in giving people grace and giving people second chances and forgiving and stuff um i don't i don't think every mistake that someone makes online is an indication of like internalized hatred towards a certain group I think sometimes they're just old boomers like us that um, that aren't like a hundred percent like caught up to speed with like the social norms. Like we want to learn them, we want to get along with everyone. It's just that we don't know them. We were not brought up knowing them, and it does wonders to like call someone out, you know. And then, like you said, hopefully they're like cool enough to be like, "Hey, um, I see that what I said." like really hurt like appears to have hurt you like really made you angry really offended you like what exactly did i say that was so offensive and how do i make this right you know 
once you exactly once you humanize the other person and realize that they're not perfect and that they deserve a second chance like oh man it just does wonders instead of going straight to the you're dead to me i hope your computer explodes someone so, um someone once said like you're a horrible person i hope your computer explodes and you lose all your game files <laughs> like it's like oh okay <laughs> let's talk about this like they, they don't want to they're just angry and they have the right to be but uh you know sometimes but uh i don't know i don't know how we got off on this tangent of like um like new social norms on the internet but like i, I don't know we're doing our best like <laughs> yes i you know i especially us older people like people assume that we spend every every minute of the day learning what you're supposed learning what is like offensive today or like what is considered like something that you're not supposed to say i don't i don't know no i know exactly where where you're where you're coming from i know where you're going and you know i can you know as someone that personally is a tries to focus on personal growth i i i commend you for reaching out you know to say hey can you help me educate me and i think that's something that you know more people should do and you know some things are regardless are unforgivable however some things you know are just like you said old boomer people or just old people that you just you don't know and you're trying your best and a little bit of empathy and helping hands can can get you into the space where you don't unintentionally offend someone or or what have you now uh because i i'm i i don't i'm not an expert on any of this and i would like to uh very gracefully steer us kind of away from that to an area that i think both of us are probably a little safer to talk about if, if you're okay with that um now you you did already you you did you know um kind of already answered one of my questions of your your favorite game as a child being Link's Awakening. Um can can you talk to a little more about why that was your favorite game as a child? I think it was because it was my first one and it was uh it was such a challenge to beat for like my my 6-year-old brain. Um uh, like don't don't hand a don't hand a 6-year-old kid who's never played video games before a Legend of Zelda game. Like they're a little more they're a little too dense. But I uh, originally I eventually got the hang of it. And I think when I was 12, I finally beat it. So six long years of playing this game, like on and off, like trying to figure out how to beat it. And with a little help from the internet, I uh, actually, I don't think I used the internet to figure it out. I think I, I think a friend of mine gave me a hint on how to get past a certain part that was like, that like stopped me for like years. And I did it and it was a huge accomplishment. And the, the story was very touching. Like, um, it was just this big emotional experience of like going on this epic adventure, putting to right a world that has been broken and, you know, and corrupted and the heartache of losing like for any like spoiler alert, but the Island that you land on in Link's awakening is an illusion. Like it's a dream world. You wake up from the dream. And so the Island disappeared. So that realization was like a lot for me to take. It was kind of emotional. Because I had played it for so long that that the characters were like my friends, you know, I knew them, I knew what they would say, you know, and, um, you know, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to complete it and like save this world. So I think, and 
there were a lot of cool there was a lot of cool humor in Link's Awakening like it was originally supposed to be a parody of the other Legend of Zelda games and so it has kind of a tongue-in-cheek cheek kind of feel to it like how everyone seems to know your name at the beginning of the game and they're like oh you're asking me how I know your name well it was on the back of this shield da 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 you know and, and there's multiple references to like you know this is yours because it has your name on it <laughs> it's like really quirky kind of um really quirky kind of dialogue like that and i don't know i just it links awakening specifically just has this charm and this kind of whimsical uh vibe about it that really came out in the switch remake they really kind of pulled that out teased that out with like the character design and the graphics and the um the music design but it's got this darker side too which i found really compelling you know like you start slowly realizing like what this world actually is and um what will happen when you finally save the day you know and if that's really a good thing or not and the final bosses of the game make this really compelling argument at the end that's like like everyone that you've come to love in in this like little world like they'll disappear once you beat the game and that's pretty heavy stuff you know kind of meta almost but uh that's those are kind of the reasons why i think that link's awakening is my favorite game it's the one that I kind of look back to a lot. Um, I I used it to kind of inform the design of some of the stuff in Faith, and uh, I I I personally go back to Link's Awakening a lot for design design help because I just found it I find it so inspiring. And you know, thank you for sharing that. And you know, I I agree. Like you know, Link's Awakening was a, was a fantastic game, and. A, the 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 way it presented itself you know i forgot how tongue-in-cheek it really was and you know all of that just really feeds into the loop of you know it's a dream and you know everyone will go and you're you're absolutely correct that that game is a much darker game than i think people would give it credit for just in this you know just in the straight up and down of you know as you said when you beat it even though it's a dream every the dream dies um i can also speak to you know how it might not be the best game the best first zelda game for someone that doesn't really play video games i um the first my first experience with it um was at a, a babysitter's a friend another child a friend at the sitters he brought his game boy and he had link's awakening and i had already like played link to the past the original zelda what have you what have you yeah and for me, what you were, what you could do, or what you should do, is natural, right? It's just I know what I'm doing, and he couldn't get past the beginning. He didn't know that when you're pushing, when you're equipping the shield and pushing whatever you have to equip, uh, you to, can push the sea urchins away. Exactly. So he watches me get up to the sword in just complete awe and amazement, and you know, as like however old I was, he was a year or so younger than me um look at me like just looking at him going like well, how did you not get this like what what's wrong with you right and you know now i completely understand you know as an adult as i got older i learned yeah you, that's uh you know people don't always click the same way you do but it like it just i can understand that you know the way it presented a lot of itself um might not have been the best first jump into the zelda verse yeah I don't know if a lot of people realize we didn't have like internet strategy guides or anything back then. So like six year old kids and their parents didn't care, you know, 
<laughs> um, six-year-old kids had to like ask bigger kids who played the game or, or other kids who play the game, like, hey, how did you get past this part? Uh, for me, the part that blocked my progress forever was um, the part in Bottle Grotto where you have to you have to grab a pot and weigh to weigh down a platform so that it it was heavy enough to be to like to kind of lurch slowly down. If you don't grab a pot, you're not heavy enough and it won't go down. And I just couldn't figure that out, <laughs> even though they were right there on the screen, like pick this up um took me years to figure that out when i figured it out i was like oh my gosh <laughs> i was like on a i think i was on a road trip with my parents like i couldn't <laughs> handle it i was like total catharsis like a, a eureka moment and then uh i think eagle's tower was really challenging and that took a while to figure out to the point where i beat level eight level seven i think and um because I think all you need to get to level seven is the mirror shield, and I already had that. But I, uh, or to get to level eight was the mirror shield. But like stuff like that, and there was like no way to look up walkthroughs on the on YouTube or anything. And a lot of games back then were like, okay, you started the game, like you're on your own, have fun, you know. And if you're like a six year old who has no idea like the conventions of like a traditional, you know, like a game experience, you're like, oh, what do I do? <laughs> and um, yeah, man, I used to have dreams about that game. And then <laughs> in 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 my Zelda Classic years, I downloaded the tile set for the Game Boy games. I played Oracle of Ages, um, and I enjoyed it to a lesser extent than Link's Awakening, but it was still kind of cool. But I downloaded the tile sets for the Game Boy games, and I was determined to make like a spiritual sequel to Link's Awakening. That's how, how much the game, like how much I loved it. I play it every now and then, I try like once a year. Well, that's you know i as i've said lots you know i understand i i agree completely um you know it's it was a very t different time like you know if you wanted to get just some hints you had to like buy nintendo power and hope that it volume of <laughs> nintendo power or whatever had the one that page... particular issue had like yeah. a hint that you could <laughs> yeah had i that... think there was a helpline wasn't there there was and it was like seven dollars a minute or some nonsense oh yeah, there's no way I would be able to justify that to my parents. Like, <laughs> I yeah, I, how how any parents did is is way beyond me. Um, now, Erdorf, I don't I don't want to keep you for too much longer. Um, however, oh, whatever, if I'm having fun. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, then you know, definitely, I I think you'll permit this 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 question. Uh, but you know, it's a new question that I'd like to ask, and I think it's important to also ask. But, you know, outside of gaming, because, uh, you know, a lot of developers I've seen say, you know, when they, you know, they make games all day, sometimes they don't want to play games. Sometimes they have, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, doing, it's like you're just, you're working and then you're coming back to kind of do work, but not. Yeah. Um, so outside of games, you know, what, what kind of things do you enjoy doing? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I have a family, uh, Mrs. Erdorf and Baby Dorf. And baby dwarf is like 21 months old. So she's a toddler. And uh, we, you know, we try to, we try to have some quality family time every day on the weekends. Uh, on the weekends, I like to shut down all the side hustle stuff and focus on my family and, uh, you know, get some work done around the house and, um, you know, watch TV and, you know, relax a little bit, go to the park with the kid, 
stuff. I try to I try to go to the gym like f- maybe three four times, and um, so I I do a little bit of weights. I do a little bit of cardio. Oh, what else do I do? Uh, I was really into like uh, research and stuff. I was running a research lab at a university here for a couple of years, and uh, I recently recently um, New Blood sweetened up my my publishing deal, so I. I got to quit my day job, and now this is all I do until uh, Faith is finished. But um, yeah, I like um, you know we we own a house, so like I do yard work and do maintenance and stuff, and um, what else? What else? I don't know. I like I like watching movies, like watching TV. Like at the end of the day, when the kids put to put to bed, like my wife and I like to just kind of relax and watch TV. We catch up on the news. We we watch BattleBots on Thursday nights, dude. BattleBots, and uh, we'll rent movies. Stuff. Um, I don't know what other hobbies do I have. I, I I used to do a lot of drawing and a lot of kind of fine art stuff. Um, now a lot of that creative energy is spent working on games. Oh, what else? do a lot of reading and I, I play games um i've been into hunt showdown a lot uh recently so much so that i have to like uninstall it because it <laughs> it uh distracts from game dev stuff um i was working through uh dark souls remastered i played the third one quite a bit and the second one and bloodborne but i never played the original dark souls so i was playing through that um, but that's also a highly engaging game world, so I had to uninstall that one too. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't get a lot of time to play games. I feel like a trader. I don't. I don't play a lot of horror games anymore, um, just because I feel like I've kind of. I'm at the point where I, like, I. This sounds kind of bad, but I, I'm at the point where like, I don't need to be inspired that much anymore. I just need to finish my my freaking game. You know, and so um, a lot of my time is most of my time is just spent working on faith. It will get done eventually, and when it does, and I and it's and it's good to do so, then I'll get back into playing games and stuff. So I'm really passionate about like horror games and stuff. I, I wish I could get more involved in the horror game indie horror space and like play other people's work and stuff. But I, I have a it's very rare when I actually pick up someone else's game just because i've been so busy i think the last last horror game i played was lost in vivo uh by um i forget what the name is akira or something like that stylish kira yeah stylish kira and i really really liked lost in vivo i was glad i played it because it was really inspiring to play i really liked uh spooky's jump scare mansion and i really liked their entries in the dread x collections oh the dread x collections i play those a lot um just because i I really enjoyed the experience of doing the first one. And I have friends that work on the other ones, so I try to try to support them. But yeah, Lost in Vivo was terrific. I I really, really enjoyed it. It it was uh, I had played it earlier when it was first released, but I had to put it down because I was so scared. <laughs> like the first ten minutes of the game were so scary to me that I was like, hell no, I'm gonna go get some pizza. <laughs> some some comfort therapy pizza. And, and you know, uh, Sorry, played... I didn't mean to cut you off there. Yeah, sure. And then last year, I think I finally finished it. 
and it was a terrific experience. I really, really liked it. Some of those scares are just so creative and so kind of uh, groundbreaking, I guess. I don't know. They're really, really creative and surprising depth to that game. And I, I would like to play it again someday. And, you know, I I think that says a lot when a game, a horror game that gives you a weapon is capable of make you, making you say, nope, I'm, I'm good for now and putting it down. And I only say that because, you mm-hmm. know, in my experience, a lot of horror games that put me in that position where I didn't have a way to to strike back so to say where it just felt like i was always running and hiding um so i think in my opinion you know if a game is capable of making you feel that scared or that uncomfortable when you have a means of you know not just being helpless that that says a lot in my mind yeah it was it really nailed that kind of old school survival horror formula where it's like okay here's a shotgun but it's full of salt, uh, riot, like salt shots, like <laughs> have fun. It's like, here's a handgun, but it's broken. So it might not fire, you know? And I think that's it. I think you get like very few weapons in the game. And so by the end of it, and then, uh, they, you know, they pitch you against enemies that where guns don't work. And uh, like the bot, like one of the bosses towards the end where they like hype this, like one creature up. And then it's really, really scary to deal with that boss for, I don't know, it's like a good 30 minutes it feels like you're encountering them. But I uh I was impressed by like basically towards the even towards the very end you still felt helpless. Like you didn't the the power fantasy hadn't you know hadn't um set in. Like Resident Evil 2 is a great example of like by the end of the game like you have a magnum with six bullets, you have a rocket launch, you have the grenade launchers, you got all this stuff, like you feel, you got all your first aid sprays and your green herbs and stuff, and they're all mixed up. And as a character, you're very optimized, you know, to where the the zombies aren't really a threat anymore to you, and it, you do not have that kind of frantic, helpless feeling at the beginning of the game. And there's a lot of balance that goes into that, and I still consider Resident Evil Two to be a great, uh, one of my favorite horror games, but the powerlessness is not maintained from from beginning to end. And there's some re- there's some design reasons for that, but Lost in Vivo really did a great job, in my opinion, of making you feel helpless and uh, underpowered throughout the whole thing. And the monsters kept getting like worse and worse and scarier and scarier <laughs> throughout the game. Uh, so tremendous job, huge applause to to Stylish Kira for that for that title. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think that's. I think that's probably one of the highest praises you can say is that it's just, it it doesn't plateau, you know, it just keeps, it keeps delivering and delivering and delivering. Mm. Um, you know, uh, the, the power fantasy for like, for example, um, you know, when I played the, the newer prey game, I, I don't know the prey 20, whatever. Um, that was one of my complaints with it is that, and by all means, or I shouldn't say, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes as well, I was just cranking down on the, you know, give me more magic or the, the equivalency of it. I forget what it was called. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, jamming needles in my eye um, for those that love that imagery. Uh, but, you know, early on, that game was terrifying because, you know, it's 
you were always underpowered. You were always, you know, there was always whatever you're about to deal with around the corner was going to be a trouble. And then, you know, by the end of the game, for me, it was, you know, every, anything and everything was just, okay, I'll just, you know, I'll just, you're done. I don't, I don't have to worry about you. I don't have to worry about any of that. So I, I definitely understand the, 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 the plateauing or the, you know, what have you. Yeah. Like, it, a lot of game designers talk about like flow where the player's skill and abilities are supposed to match the rising difficulty of, uh, of the gameplay. I, I experienced the same thing with System Shock 2. Like System Shock 2 is very scary as an immersive simulator in the beginning of the game, but towards the end, you know, if you play your cards right, you can get very overpowered and, you know, the final boss and the final areas are just like nothing. But maybe that's like part of the, you know, part of the uh, journey that the player is supposed to go on. Maybe that's what they intended. Immersive sims are kind of like that, where you like, um, you know, you get like Deus Ex, where you can get extremely overpowered by the end of the game. Um, but it's still mixed with this like sci-fi horror element where you're still supposed to be scared. So um, yeah, it's it's tough. Uh, I'm very thankful that I chose a very simple genre and a very simple kind of setup for Faith because I it I you know coupled with stylistic choices like the rotoscope cutscenes and the and the audio, you know, keeping it simple really helps me to not really helps me to just focus on scares, you know someday i'll try to get into another genre like maybe a first person shooter horror game or something like that and i'll have the challenge of balancing power with a game challenge but that'll be after i finish faith so hopefully i can finish faith this year well fingers crossed for you on that you know i like i said i i played it i i first had experience with um with what you were doing uh through dread x with summer night which you know i i i absolutely trusted you when you said that there's nothing horror related <laughs> for it. Um, so... I love that game. Can I just can I just do a self plug? Oh no! Like, by all means, I, I was so, I was going to lead into a self plug. For I am so, so totally proud of myself for Summer Night. Like I don't know, it just came out so well. I wish more people picked up the Dreadx collection so they can play it. Um, but the like that was made in two weeks. Like I had two weeks to finish that game. Technically, it was ten days, but it, you know I fudged it a little bit, and. Um, I'm really pleased with how it came out and I love watching the f people's faces and their reactions when they get to the very end. I'll just say that. So if you haven't played it, definitely get the Dreadx collection and support, support like pandemic era indie devs, indie horror devs and, um, and play summer night. I'm very, very proud of it. You know, and definitely you should be, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was fantastic. And like I said, I made the mistake of trusting you. Um, if you put out a similar warning for faith, I have already played the demo to faith or what have you. <laughs> so I won't, I won't make the mistake of trusting you ever again. When you say this game is not going to scare you, but <laughs> you know, I, 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 I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, up until the point where I realized you lied to me and then I felt hurt and terrified. Um, and, but yeah, no, with, with faith coming out, I hope it does well for you. I, I, I played it. I enjoyed it. Um, or the demo, sorry, I shouldn't say that. It makes it sound like I played the whole thing. Um, but now, Airdorf, you know, as you, as you, as I said before, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. However, if there is anything else you want to discuss, uh, you know, a cool game, what else you're doing, something you feel more people should be aware of, you know, the floor is yours as well. 
please let any let everyone know where they can find more information about you, uh, which I'll be including in the episode description. Oh yeah, I um, like Twitter is the best way to get a hold of me and fi- and see what I'm I'm doing. I post all my updates on Twitter right now, just because that's the easiest to manage. So like at Airdorf on Twitter. Every now and then I'll post an update on the Steam the Steam page for the Unholy Trinity and every once in a while on my YouTube channel, but Twitter is the best way to get a hold of me. It's the best way to like don't go to the Facebook page. I hate Facebook and I wish that I could take my page down. I suppose I will. I don't know. But um yeah, Twitter's the best way to get a hold of me. You can always email me at airdorf at gmail.com hearing from from people and and answering questions and stuff like that like i i love the the ability to reach out and interact with uh with fellow horror fans and and people who play my games and enjoy them if you don't enjoy them you can still message me i guess the very first review of faith was like a one star review they didn't like it. They didn't like how slow John moved, and they didn't like how hard the final boss was, and so they equated that with bad game design. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad I didn't let that discourage me, because I think the same week, the creator of Super Meat Boy like tweeted about Faith or something like that. And I was like, ooh, okay. We're, we're back on track, you know. But anyway... Yeah. Definitely, you know, you take the good, take the bad, and you know, at the end of the day, it's you know, you you have to decide what you feel is best for for your vision, right? So, yeah, and I had no is. idea what I had no idea that faith would get as big as it did. Not that it's like super big, but um, I had no idea that people would so many people would enjoy faith by the end of you know the the dev cycle for the, like the first game. So I just I just put it out there. I didn't even have any kind of marketing. I had like a trailer, I think, and that's it. Um, I didn't even have a Twitter, so when people tweeted about it, it was because they found it online, you know. And I had no idea. I still can't. I still can't really wrap my head around it, or or like accept that faith is is like a big deal. It's like a medium deal, I guess. I'll give it that. <laughs> Hopefully, it'll oh. be a big deal when it finally releases and kind of enters into the public eye, like in its complete form. You know, yes, fingers crossed for you, because like I said, I I've enjoyed what I've played of what you've done previously or currently. Uh, and I, I hope for the best for you. I hope that, you know, it, it gets the recognition and uh, something that more people can, can enjoy and realize that, you know, it's something that might be up their alley. It's something that they can enjoy. Right. Yeah. I, I'm really impressed with how chapter three is coming out. Uh, QA testing uh, has been going on for a while on like different portions of it. And so we're really, narrowing down i really think that this year it'll come out hopefully well like i said fingers crossed for you i hope you know hopefully just so that way more people can can experience the 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 full package and not just you know the qa testers or yourself or what have you yeah well thank you so much for having me yeah no no worries again thank you so much for 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 agreeing and giving me the time for this and, you know, definitely, if there isn't anything else you want to make sure people are aware of, I will let you get on with your day. Okay. Thanks again, Airdwarf, for making time to have this conversation with me. And thank you for joining us on the Red Tunic podcast, as well as a special thanks to Ronald Jenkins for the use of music from the title track from Rose Deep. And if you like this podcast and want to support it and help it grow, please subscribe or follow me on Twitter at Red Tunic Podcast to receive the latest episodes and news. And be sure to share with those you think 
might also enjoy it. Thanks, and until next time.